Um, I'm going to read a question from Brian, who's here, but is having audio difficulties. So his question uh, is, recently a job offer included in a clause on moral issues. Um, there was a contract that where a moral issues clause was included. Buried in the fine print, it stated that in the event of a conflict, moral decisions would be made exclusively by the company. I requested the clause to be removed and offered an alternative after having the reasons for the clause. To address their concerns, ultimately the company or its lawyers were unwilling to make changes. And so the contract was voided. I spoke to friends and family about it, and this is not unusual in some lines of work, although I thought I was the first uh, to have come across it. Most people t uh, talk uh, to agree there is no way uh, they'd work for someone asking that. However, others say it's just the price of doing business. I couldn't consciously surrender free will in a contract, even if I was fairly certain that there would be no conflict with this with this clause. Um, that's in very small type here, so. <laughs> um, I couldn't consciously surrender free will in a contract, even if it was, I was certain there was, there would be no conflict. Perhaps this is ego. Still not sure how much of it is indignation and how much is related to evolving my consciousness. It got me to thinking about your experience working for the Army. Perhaps it's different with your specific work, but the Army is generally, the Army is generally perceived as a place where you don't get too many free will choices, that you must follow orders even if they go against your morals. Nearly everyone faces this dilemma at some point when asked by a boss to do something they know is wrong. Um, that, given the particular situation, was in a contract for child education services. I suspect there must be others that have signed commercial contracts in their work to give up their moral authority, at least to the legal system. Perhaps you have another perspective, and you gave this some thought during your time in the Army. Did you ever have reservations about working for an organization that had, for the most part, known uh, to override free will of its own members. As free will is an integral part of consciousness evolution, ego or no ego, it seems this should be given up. Okay, so let's discuss a little bit about free will and what free will uh, is. Free will is your ability to make a free choice, your choice, amongst the possibilities that you see. So you come to a decision, and you get to make a choice. Your choice. And maybe there's ten things that you could choose. So I could do one of these ten things. I could act in one of these ten ways. It's your choice. You have free will to do that. That's all free will is. Your ability to freely choose among the things that you see as your choices. There may be choices that you don't see things you could have done, but they're outside of your awareness, well, that's not part of your decision space. You, your decision space is just limited to the choices that you see. Okay, And you have the free will to make decisions within that decision space. Now, when you take a job, you have to commit to certain things, like showing up for work. You, know, you have to commit to you know doing the tasks that they ask you to do, working with the people they ask you to work with. There's a whole lot of things, you know. They generally will give you a desk. They will give you a computer. You don't start a job and say, all right, I want this job. Now, I want to work in such and such a city and such and such a place, and I'd like my office to be this large and this big, and I'd like to have a nice comfy chair over in the corner, and let's see, what else do I need? Oh, I need a uh, you know, a computer of this strong and this, and my monitor needs to be at least this big. You don't start a job by telling them exactly 
what you are going to do and how you're going to do it because you really don't know all that stuff and they would just throw you out the door if you did that. So anytime you accept a job or any other sort of thing, get married, have a child, well, responsibilities come with that. Okay, now that doesn't mean that you lose your free will. All right, now I don't have a job. I'm retired, and I don't have to get up at any particular time in the morning because I don't have to punch a time clock in an office. Okay, now I go take a job. Did I just lose my free will because now I have to get up and be in that office by 8 o'clock in the morning and punch that clock? Oh, no. My free will to stay home in bed has just been, you know, that's not the way it works. That's not free will. Those are just responsibilities I take on when I accept the job. I'm responsible to get there on time. I'm responsible to do the work that they ask me to do. Now, I always have the choice to say no. If they ask me, oh, we want you to go out and steal candy from babies. Look, there's a baby. Go see if there's any candy in that basket and bring it back. You know, I can always say no. I won't do that. And if they say, well, if you won't do that, you're fired. And I would say, well, I'm fired then. Goodbye. I'm not going to steal candy from babies. It's immoral. So you always have that. Your free will always has that as an option to say, no, I won't do that. I won't go there. So if you join a new organization, you should look at that organization enough to know, are they going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to say no and walk away? If you think that's likely, then probably not a good place for you to work. If you think that's unlikely, then it's just, you know, it's, it's risk. It might happen. You know, it just depends. Could happen. If it does, then you deal with it. You say no. You don't necessarily have to leave. Maybe you go up to your manager's manager and say, they want me to do this. And, I think that's wrong. And maybe take it up to his manager's manager and say, I don't want to do this. I think it's wrong. And eventually you may strike out and have to leave. Or you may actually get company policy to change. You see? So you just deal with that stuff when it happens. So you're not losing free will because there's a clause. And I didn't really understand the clause. You didn't give, you didn't tell me that in enough detail for me to really understand it. It sounded like the company said, the company reserves the right to make moral choice when it comes to our business. Okay. Now, I can see that a company might want to say that. If I had a company and I had, let's say, my customer support department, I wouldn't want somebody in customer support because they were, say, racist, deciding that they were going to give you know a hard time to people of this race. And they thought that would be a good thing to do. Their moral choice, choice said, I should treat these people badly. That's their ethics. That's their morals. That's what they choose to do. And the company would say, no, you work for us. We don't have that attitude. We get to make that choice, and you will not do that. So in that case, the company would want to have control over moral choices that were made on behalf of the company because you represent the company. Now, if you're making moral choices on behalf of yourself, you're talking to somebody else at the water fountain, and it's not about the company, it's about you personally, well, then that's different. Or if the company wants you to do something that's immoral, that's different. So I'd ask the question, why? Why is that clause in there? Why would the company feel the need to put that clause in there? What happened where they got in some sort of trouble or ran into some kind of problem that they felt they need to put that clause in there. And I would want to research that pretty carefully with these folks to see what it was. If somebody refused to steal the candy from the baby, and that's why they put it in there, because they, they wanted to say, well, if you work here, you're going to have to steal candy from babies. Well, then I just wouldn't work there. But if it was for some other reason, we want to make sure that the people that meet our customers, you know, aren't applying their own attitudes and their own sense of ethics and morality in our name. So we reserve the right that we set those rules about how you interact with our customers. Well, that would make perfectly good sense to me. So 
I would say it's an individual basis, and you always have the right to say no and leave. You should always investigate a company to see how likely that's going to come up. If it's very unlikely, then you take your chance. It still may come up. It just may be you have a rotten boss and a rotten boss's boss, in which case you may have to leave. But those things happen. Then you leave and find something else. And well, Brian, leave, sorry, Brian says, um, still listening, uh, though in this case the company was self-serving. So I don't know what the moral dilemma was there. Yeah. Well, if it's self-serving and it wants you to do things that you consider immoral, then that's a no-brainer. You don't want to work there. You know, if if the company says, all right, uh, you know, we don't, uh, we don't, you know, I'm running a restaurant. And I don't want any people with blue eyes and blonde hair coming into my restaurant. And if you see one, you just tell them, no, thank you. You're, you're not welcome here. Well, then I would just not work there because that's wrong. So I don't know. It seems to me like a simple problem. If there's a if there's a moral issue that you disagree with, then don't work there. If you do work there, it's not that they're overriding your free will. It's just that, you know, if they are not breaking any laws, then they get to tell you what they want you to do. And you do it. If you don't like it, you can leave or you can complain or you can raise it up to a higher level. It's just like that, you know. So you pick companies that you think you will fit into well, that uh, you kind of have the, you, you see their culture and you fit into that culture. Getting in a company where you are crosswise to the company's culture probably is a bad idea from the first place. So, yeah, I know, I'm sure there are companies with really bad attitudes. The way they treat people, maybe usually they don't do anything illegal because they're very careful about that. That's why they hire a lot of lawyers is to not do things that are illegal, but they may do things that are immoral and unethical. And there's a lot of companies that do immoral and unethical things every day. Remember, it wasn't, that, so it wasn't that long ago where we had a um, Wells Fargo got uh, pulled up and uh, they were they were kind of pushing their people to sell things, you know, to sell new accounts and things that uh, that people didn't need. You know, let's push this stuff, even though people don't need them. We want you to push them anyway. And here's how you trick people into into getting them. And they they got they got caught, and they had to pay a price for that. But there's a company that wanted its people to do something that was unethical, sell things that they knew people didn't want, but trick them into thinking they needed it or wanted it. So they had sometimes one person with four or five accounts that they were, they were, uh, you know, spending, spending money in. And sometimes the people had no idea. They just make the account up. Didn't even talk to the people, just make that account up and put it in because they got scored on their job performance by how many new accounts they got. Well, pretty soon you learn how to game the system and you start making new accounts out of thin air, which I think was another thing that happened there. So, sure, there's lots of things that are unethical that happen. But uh, now working for DOD, I didn't have I didn't have that problem. You know, in my mind, if I got asked to do something I thought was wrong, I just wouldn't do it. It's just that simple. You know, you're not forced. You're not a slave. They don't have you chained, you know, chained by your ankle, you know, to your desk or anything. You just don't do it. And the part that I was in of DOD was not offensive at all. It was all defensive. It was it was uh, how to survive, not how to wage war, not how to you know. So there's a difference between offense and defense. So I was always in the in the defensive side of of uh, army. I was in the intelligence side for a while, just figuring out how things worked. And then I was in the the uh, uh, missile defense side for a while, uh, developing uh, tools that could, you know, tools for for assessing uh, very large complex problems. Uh, but it was all defensive. So I didn't have that problem. And matter of fact, here's another thing about about problematic companies is that you can always make more change from the inside than you can from the outside. If you've got if you're in a problematic company, 
Well, you have, and you think it's kind of pushing the, the gray, the gray edge of unacceptable. You can make more changes from inside by offering, you know, different ways of doing things, maybe more efficient ways of doing things that are also more ethical, you know, trying to solve problems, not just complaining about them, but trying to solve problems. Mostly companies will do whatever makes them more money. So if you can come up with a more efficient way of doing something that's actually also more ethical, they may buy that. They're not unethical just because they like being unethical. They're unethical because they think that's making them more money, probably. So you have, you have leverage inside. As soon as you walk out the door, you have no leverage whatsoever. So if you think you can, you can change minds, if you think you can change attitudes, you're much better off staying in a company and trying to change it than you are by going outside and turning around and, you know, shaking your fist at it and saying, oh, bad company, because that just makes the company double down and it's, and it's bad behavior when you do that. So there's advantages to sticking it out if you think you can implement changes. You have much more positive contribution if you can make something that was not good turn around and be better. So I didn't have any problem in uh, I didn't ha- I wasn't asked to do anything that was immoral or, or took advantage of people or overran people's free will. You know, you overrun people's free will when you take away their choice. Now, taking away my choice to sleep late in the morning, that's not an infringement on my free will. That's a responsibility of me when I take the job, you see. Telling me that I have to uh, give money to a particular charity or that I have to, you know, uh, process, you know, what, process things for these kinds of people, but not for those kinds of people. You know, I can sell houses to these kinds of people, but don't let any of those kinds of people in the neighborhood. You know, now those are wrong things that you just don't do. And if it's also illegal, well, now you can be a whistleblower. You can go out to the people who are in charge of things being legal and say, look, there's a problem here in this company. And maybe you can make changes that way. So I don't know. It's to me, there's really not a problem because you can always say no if you have to. If you can change it, that's even better. All right, Tom. I don't don't really see a big problem. Sure. Brian says, thank you for your insights. Always appreciated. Um, What we're going to do is circle back now around to Lawrence, who had another question. So your second question, Lawrence, and if we don't answer the subsequent questions that you have, they will be answered elsewhere. But go ahead with your second question. All right. Thank you, Donna. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. And I, I can't really see anybody. My uh, screen froze, so everybody's frozen. So I got. I'll just ask. I'll just say the question. Okay. Um, during the Big Bang, the universe started with the big ball of plasma, then expanded into, I guess, gases, elements, and to suns, and then eventually to planets, and then it evolved to animals, all the way up to uh, human beings. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, with Tom's MBT, he says that um, reality isn't rendered until a consciousness observer looks at the at the particular piece of information and then it renders to them uh, what they should be looking at at that particular time. So my question is, during the Big Bang, is there a consciousness rendering, not necessarily rendering uh well, yeah. Like, is it a, is there a, like the the larger consciousness system rendering the the Big Bang, the plasma, and like the gases and evolving? Because like, who, what, what conscious uh, entity mm-hmm. or piece would actually be directing those elements in order to make our sun and the Earth and all of that stuff? If no human consciousness is there to witness it until we finally got here. Okay, I understand your question. Um... You're saying if there's no if there's no consciousness here, then how does it get rendered? Because it only gets rendered to a consciousness. Yeah. Okay. Well, the way that works is to start up. The system plays all the parts. In other words, the system 
starts out with a rule set and the way the gases expand and cool and form suns and so on all that is just according to the rule set it's all strictly rule set stuff so it's how does that plasma change in time according to the rule set so there's gravity that pulls things apart but there's high pressure that pushes things you know that pushes things apart gravity that pulls things together didn't say that too well gravity pulls things together pressure pushes things apart as they go apart they cool as they cool you know they coalesce that sort of thing so those are just rule set things so that went on but then eventually you have these cells and single cells and multi-celled things and animals and so on and the in the beginning there wasn't any consciousness that was logged on there was no free will awareness unit logged on to anything so the consciousness the larger consciousness system had to play all the parts. In other words, it was it played the parts as NPCs, non-player characters. So when you play a video game, there are characters like you who are sitting at computers, but then there's NPCs, which are the characters that the computer makes. You know, they belong to the game. You know, it's the it's the uh, you know the the boss that you have to get. It's the it's the a lot of the the gremlins and the things that you have to deal with. You know, those are all NPCs. There's not actually somebody sitting at a computer playing those parts. The computer just does those parts itself. Well, that's what happened here. So the computer played all those parts itself, and it would just take a piece of itself and and run that part, run that code of that part. Now, as the system grew and it got to the point that there were that there were avatars that had meaningful choices, you know, avatars that actually made choices that had some kind of moral or ethical uh, nuances to them. In other words, choices where a conscious could learn something about making good choices or or uh, making poor choices. There was room for growth there. Well, when it evolved to that point, then the system could let those NPCs turn into players. An IUOC could have a free will awareness unit, and the computer would say, all right, you can take over this character. And the computer stopped playing that character, and that, that person or that consciousness started playing that character. And as time went on, almost all the characters were played by consciousness, you know, pieces of consciousness like us. We were playing all the characters. But as it started, the system started playing all the characters because it took a long time before that simulation evolved to the point that there was anything making choices that were really attractive as as growth potential for consciousness. You know, the choices of a jellyfish don't give a lot of growth potential, you know, for a consciousness making those choices. So the, if this conscious said, anybody want to log on to a jellyfish? <laughs> they probably would have not got any comers. And everybody said, no, thanks. And nothing much to learn there. Uh, you know, boring, you know, that sort of thing. But eventually there were creatures and things that did make interesting choices and consciousness would log on and so on. So um, eventually they got to the point that that there were things like humans and they made lots and lots of ethical and moral choices by which they could evolve and de-evolve. And then lots of IUOCs wanted to join the game. All right, I'll make a free will awareness unit and play in that game because there's a lot to learn there. So that's how that came about, Lawrence. It, uh, they were all NPCs to start with. Is there some type of um, software collapse? Is like, how is it, um, or is it like some type of, Maybe not a a, a a consciousness like us, but maybe is there some type of proto-consciousness that we're looking through its consciousness in order for us to render? Similarly, like you said, like, you know, it started with the ball of plasma and then the gases expanding and it formed stars. But then mm-hmm. how is it knowing these elements in like the earth? And, you know, is it, is, is it have, does it have a software collapse that is somehow seeing it in that way or, or it's given the human consciousness it's just rule set it just looked at the rule set and said that's what the rule set says the rule set says this stuff is going to expand and when it expands it cools and when it cools it's going to coalesce into lumps and those lumps are going to be very hot and they're going to spread around and you know there's these systems and they make more lumps and then some of the some of the lumps 
are not stars. They don't have fire inside. They're not burning. They're just rocks. And those rocks will deteriorate and that'll turn into soil. And, and then you end up with cell or, you know, single celled organisms. And then you end up with plants. And it's just was how the rule set said things happened. And now, if the system got working on this this virtual reality and it was out there evolving and nothing much was going on and it just you know it still was in the fern stage and didn't look like anything else was happening well it might reach in and monkey with it a little bit it might you know say well what well, i need to speed this process up so we could go in there and make a little change add a little something uh you know create something that would get it going again and add that to the to the uh, to the system, so I, I don't know that it's just purely the rule set. It's the rule set, but plus whatever else the system wanted to add to it to make it work better. I mean, we do that now with simulations. There are universities that have simulations just like that. They have rule sets and initial conditions, and they just let them run and see where they'll go. And right. and if they look like they're going to be really boring. Well, they'll go back and tinker with them a little bit, and they'll add a little this or a lot of that or turn this up and turn that down, and then they'll let them run some more. So there may have been a lot of tinkering with our system before they finally got what they wanted, which was a good source of avatars for consciousness to log on to. So it's just basically rule set with probably a little intervention by the system to make it work more efficiently and effectively. Okay, so when you say rule set... You're saying like with within the imagination of consciousness, not the in, yeah. not the, uh, the information that it's actually made of, because everything is information supposedly, right? right. So when you're saying that you get, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's in consciousness. Consciousness came up with the rules and came up with the initial conditions, and everything exists in the mind of consciousness. Oh, okay. The whole thing exists in the mind of consciousness. Larger conscious system is just a mind, you know, and we exist as parts of it. So we're all pieces of that of that uh, larger consciousness system, which is just mind. Wow. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Tom, I've got a question that came in from John McKay. He's a Scottish gentleman living in Thailand and um, doesn't get to appear uh, in person that often. So his question is, um, I'd like to understand why people get temporary relief from their fears by being hurtful or just mean. It's even an aspect of British culture to be quick-witted and cruel and to make fun or bring another person down. Seems to massage the ego and make some feel better for a short time by transferring their fear. Could you take a moment to talk about that? I think it could help to recognize clearly that fear in others, and perhaps you could give some advice about developing good responses like compassion and uh, helpfulness. Sure. Well, that is true. What you what you say is, is uh, often is cultural. It's just the way... Uh, Culture sometimes develop because the general low quality of consciousness that pervades humanity. So somebody who's fearful often doesn't feel good about themselves. Often that fear wraps around their own feelings of inadequacy, their feelings of insecurity, their feelings of, of uh, not being good enough. Um, not doing enough, not becoming what they should have become, not being all they could be. You know, they have this negative attitudes toward themselves. And if you have a negative attitude towards yourself, well, that's called ego, right? It's about you. It's all about you. And when you have that, you like to, to uh, can we say, not just avoid it, but uh, pretend that it doesn't exist. So you look for ways to make yourself feel better about you. And one of the ways you can make yourself feel better about you is by seeing yourself as better than somebody else. So people with a low quality of consciousness and a lot of fear and egos tend to see other people as worse than them, as not as good, not as knowledgeable, don't understand as much. 
Boy, I just hate having to deal with all those stupid people out there. You know, that kind of an attitude. Where you're smart and your friends are smart, of course, and your family's smart. And, and, you know, but the world is just full of stupid people that you have to deal with. Well, that is an ego talking, and it makes the person feel better. Well, at least I'm better than them. And as you deal with individuals and some individual says something and you're able to put them down, well, then it makes you feel better about you because in comparison, nobody's putting you down, but this person's being put down. This person sees a flaw showing, but you've got all your flaws hidden. Nobody can see your flaws. You're really better off. So it's a, it's a strategy that people use to make themselves feel better. And the reason that they feel bad to begin with is because they don't really like who they are. They don't like themselves very much. They feel small. They feel they have no power. They have no umph. They just don't amount to much. That's the feeling they have. They're failed. They're not important. They're not significant, you know, in the big picture. And they feel that. And by putting somebody else down, they feel more significant. There's a strategy to deal with fear. Another strategy to deal with fear, somebody says something and it triggers your fear. They push your button and they make you feel more inadequate. Well, your, your fears of being inadequate, but they say something that actually makes you feel more inadequate and you respond with anger. Usually when people get angry, it's because you have made them feel their fear. They have that fear nice and comfy and all covered up. Nobody will notice it. And you say something that makes them feel inadequate or makes them feel small. And they get angry at you for doing that because you forced them to feel their fear that they had covered up so nicely. So there's all these strategies that people have for dealing with their fear. You can be very fearful that nobody likes you and nobody, you know, and you're small and you're, you're inadequate. And the way you deal with it is by being bigger than life. You know, you become a bully. You become pushy. You push people around because it makes you feel better and bigger and more significant because you can push people around. Or you may do just the opposite. You may shrink. You may be, you know, go sit in a corner by yourself and become very meek and mild and, and, uh, hardly say anything to anybody because you know, if you said anything to them, they'd know that you were stupid or they know that you weren't worth much. So as long as you're not worth much, you might as well just go over and sit in a corner by yourself. So you see, those two are opposite things. One is this arrogant bully and the other is the shrinking violet. Yet both of them come from the same cause. So there's literally hundreds of ways that people avoid having to face their fears. And putting other people down is just, is just one of them. So um, it's, a, it's a sign of ego and fear. It's a sign of belief, too, because often they start to believe that they're superior. They're smarter than everybody else. Everybody else is stupid and just doesn't get it. But, you know, me and my friends, we get it. We understand. So we can laugh at these other people who are just too stupid to get it. So it it can come in all sorts of ways. And we have a tendency to do that, put other people down. It's, well, thank uh, you, Tom. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's just everywhere. You know, you talk about it and you say it's part of British culture. Well, it's a part of American culture. It's part of it's part of every culture. It's 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 the way people are when they have fear and they have ego. And almost everybody in our planet has a lot of fear and ego. So it's it's an endemic thing. It's everywhere. You'll hear it and see it no matter where you go. And in some places, maybe Britain is one of those, it actually is cute. And people, uh, you know, think it's funny. Well, look at the sitcoms on TV. Most of those sitcoms are get their laughs by putting other people down, making fun of people, pointing at people as being ridiculous, pointing at people as being stupid, pointing at people as 
having made a really dumb decision. So that's mainly what the sitcoms are about, is putting other people down, laughing at them for the errors they make. And, uh, and you know, they bumble and stumble and we laugh at them. That's seen as humor. Well, from a healthier perspective, you'd see that as sick humor, you know, but uh, we don't because we have more of an unhealthy perspective where that's funny, watching people fail and be ridiculous and do stupid things and hurt themselves or hurt each other. And we find that to be you know, amusing because it makes us feel superior. It makes us feel better because we're not them. We're not like that. We don't say those things. We don't make those mistakes. We're better than that. So we laugh at them because we don't want to cry about ourselves. Thank you, Tom. Giuseppe has a question. Giuseppe and Guillaume have a question that just came up. So please go ahead, Giuseppe. Hi, everyone. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My question is about um, what is the difference in MBT between um, self-love and ego? Because I try, I'm trying to have a love intent all the time. I'm trying to be consciousness, but in my social interactions, um, I'm thinking what I read in the book that you have uh, to think of what other people want, need, and desire. Sometimes I get confused because if I'm trying to please them, sometimes I don't want to please them, and I'm, and I'm thinking, is that ego or is that self-love? So I'm getting a little bit confused with those two concepts. Okay. Um, self-love is not really a good expression. I don't use self-love. I use self-like. You've got to like yourself. If you don't like yourself, it's very hard for you to, to evolve. You know, if, you're, if you're very down on yourself, then all sorts of things follow. Like we just said, you're probably a real snarky with other people. You know, you, you put people down. You have all these things. If you don't like yourself, you're an unhappy person. You're kind of a miserable individual. So like is important. Now, love, I define as about other. Love is not about yourself. It's about other people. So when you talk about loving yourself, oh, we got a, we got a, a, a oxymoron there that, you know, there's a conflict in logic. Love is about other, but loving yourself and yourself is about self. So what is this? So I just don't use the love yourself. I use the like yourself. Loving yourself is called narcissism. You know, so if you love yourself, then you're a narcissist. You know, oh, I just love me. I am so wonderful. Oh, everybody just is so lucky that they get to know me. You know, that that is narcissism. And that should be avoided. So self-love is, in my book, an MBT book, self-love is a bad thing. Self-like is an essential thing. It's very, very important that you have to like yourself. And this love and like are really quite different things. There's all sorts of people you can love but don't like. Many people find that in their families, you know, in their extended families. You know, there's that uncle or aunt or that somebody there in your family that you get to meet and you really don't like them but they're part of your family and you would go out of your way to help them if you could, because there's love there because they're your brother or your sister or your mother or somebody. So you can, you can love people, but not really like them. You can like people, but not really love them. You know, they're two different things. They're not really synonyms for each other, although they're related. So liking is essential. Love is about other. Now, when it's about other, you have to use some uh, discretion about how you apply that. It's not like you just walk up to everybody you see and try to make them happy. I mean, that's a possibility, but that'd really be hard to do. And sometimes it just wouldn't work well. You walk up to the wrong person and try to make them happy, you're liable to get slapped. You know, or shot, you know, it depends on where you live and what kind of violent neighborhoods you're walking through. So you have to have some some discretion there. And here's how you decide, you know, about being 
being, uh, you know, making other people happy and being about other. If what you are going to do or what you can do lowers the entropy of the system. Now, your entropy is part of the entropy of the system. So it lowers your entropy and lowers the entropy of the system. So if you're going to go make somebody happy and, you know, you want to care about somebody, then think, what are the ramifications of that? All right, if I walk up to this stranger and just tell him to have a nice day, you know, well, that might be a nice thing to do, but, you know, maybe this is a bad neighborhood and that guy would be afraid of me because I'm big and, and uh, you know, it may create a problem. So maybe I might not do that because it could actually increase entropy, not lower it. So you have to think about that. So I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to connect with these people. I want to talk with my old Uncle Fred that uh, generally I don't see and I generally don't like and I avoid, but I really should talk with him because he is my uncle, you know. Well, what's it going to do? Look at the long-term consequences. Say, all right, if I do that, what's the upside? What's the downside? How will it lower entropy? How will it make things better? How will it make things more positive? For Uncle Fred, for me, for everybody else here, you know, in general, for the system. And if it's and if your result of that analysis is, oh, it's going to lower entropy for me and the system, well, then it's a good thing to do. But if your analysis says, eh, that's pretty chancy, it could really, uh, you know, it could really raise the entropy of the system. You know, it could. You know, I could walk up to Uncle Fred, and he may be in a really bad mood, and you know, I may say, you know, hi, Fred, how you doing? And he may get angry, may go on a tirade, you know, maybe, uh, you know, he, he didn't get his happy pills today or something, and it may create a big problem, or, you know, it may create some other family issues would happen, and, and in that case, you don't, because the end result is high entropy, you see? So everything that you think you might do, Give it the entropy analysis, and it has to be the system entropy and yours. So it needs to lower. In other words, the, the, the result and effect of you making that choice has to be lower entropy. If it's higher entropy, don't make the choice. That's pushing the system in the wrong direction. All right. Now, these entropy calculations are not exact. And it's going to take a little bit of time for you to get used to making them. It's not an exact science. So how do you proceed? Because you don't really know what the long term. This has to be long term system entropy. Because you may do something that makes some people happy right away and lowers entropy. But in the long run, it makes a whole lot of people upset. You see? So you look at the long term system entropy. Don't do the thing that makes a whole lot of people upset, even if it makes a few people happy early on. See, because in the long term, that will be an entropy raiser, not a lower. So how do you come to these, these uh, computations about what, they have to, what it's going to do to the entropy? Well, you just have to think it through. What are the consequences? If I do this, what are the likely things that will happen? And then what are the likely things that will happen because of the things that will happen and so on through, you know, how does this pass on through the, the social system? You know, so if I think that Uncle Fred is just a miserable person and what I really need to do is take him out. So I'm going to go up and hit Uncle Fred over the head with an iron pipe because that will get rid of him for once or for all because he's such a high entropy person. I'm going to do the world a favor. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to uh, rid the world of Uncle Fred. Well, you have to think of all the percussions of that, you know, and think long term, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You see, long term, it'd probably be a bad thing. All kinds of negative things are going to happen because of that, going to happen to you, going to happen to your family, going to happen to, you know, your larger family, going to happen to Uncle Fred's family and on. It's just socially, you know, it's just. There's probably lots of things it would set an example for other people who think they need to get rid of somebody, you know, a bad example. So you think all the possibilities and you probably come up with a, that being a really poor choice because in the long run, that's going to create more entropy than it gets rid of because Uncle Fred was just really annoying. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that annoying that it's going to outweigh all this other stuff. 
On the other hand, Uncle Fred is a homicidal maniac, and you know that he's got a whole bunch of murders, you know, on the list for the next evening. Well, then maybe that's a good thing to do is take Uncle Fred out before he kills all those people. You see, now that would be the low entropy solution, if you happen to know that for a fact. See my point? It just depends on the situation. You have to think about it. So you think and say, oh, what are the consequences? What are the unintended consequences? You know, what are the consequences of the consequences? And the consequences of those consequences, do your best. Come to the conclusion of whether it's a good thing to do or not. Don't worry about the fact that your entropy calculations are just your best guess. Just do it. Then pay attention and see what happens. And look at it for long enough to get a sense of what did happen. Did it raise or lower entropy in the long term? Was it a good thing or a bad thing? And from that, you learn something. Well, if it lowered entropy long-term, you say, oh, that worked out pretty good. I'll do more of that. If there were unintended consequences and it went sour after a couple you know, iterations, then you'll say, oops, I didn't take into consideration these other you know, things. Those were, I forgot about those consequences. I won't make that mistake again. So the point is you do your best. Do due diligence. Don't just do it short, quick, and dirty. Think about it. What are the consequences to people of you doing it and not doing it? Make your choice, then do it and learn from it. If you do that, you very quickly are going to grow up and learn a lot and become a wise person because that's how we grow up. We don't have to have the solution. We don't have to have the perfect entropy calculator to let us know whether we should do something or not. We just have to be Truly diligent that we've really thought about it seriously. And here's the what we think the answer is. And then we have to learn from that. There is no penalty for making a poor choice. There is a penalty for making a poor choice and not learning anything from it. You see? So that kind of solves the problem. Your entropy calculation doesn't have to be precise. It just has to be your best shot. And then you just go do it and learn. And that's how you evolve. Thank you, Tom. One, one thing. Um, so it doesn't matter how I feel. I can feel, for example, bad of doing some things. But the important thing is that I do the, like the entropy analysis and try to see the consequences of my action and trying to learn from it. It doesn't matter if I feel good or if I feel bad. So the more no. important is the cognition of it. Yeah, it's... Well, your feelings are important parts of that process because your feelings kind of come out of the intuitive side of you. And your intuitive side is going to be pretty smart. Your intuitive side knows things that your intellect doesn't. So your feelings should be a part of that process. If you look at it and say, well, I think this lowers entropy, but something about it just doesn't feel right. You know, there's something about it that feels wrong. Well, then I wouldn't do it yet. I'd, I'd have to spend more time with that doesn't feel right feeling and see if I couldn't put that in more context and I'd struggle with that for a while. And then if I still couldn't figure it out, I'd probably go with the intuition because I've learned my intuition is a whole lot smarter than my intellect. So I'd probably just go with the intuition and say, well, if it doesn't feel right, just better not do it. But then I'd watch it and I'd see if I could maybe get some information on that. So, you know, the feelings are important, but you take the feelings into consideration when you're considering whether it's going to lower and raise entropy. If your feeling says, well, this feels really great. I think that would be a great thing to do if I did it. Well, okay, you feel good about it, but what would be the, you know, what are the unintended consequences? Are there any unintended consequences? You know, the consequences of the consequences of the consequences. How does that play out in the long run? Let's say you have a friend and your friend's an alcoholic and your alcoholic needs some money for another bottle of cheap wine. You know, well, you could give your friend some money and he could go buy another bottle of, ch of cheap wine, but are you really helping your friend? And what's the long-term entropy from that decision? Well, you're probably not helping your friend much. You're just, you're an enabler for his alcoholism. You're enabling him just to be an alcoholic and, and get by. So then you might think of, well, maybe the kinder thing to do would be to say no. You need to not have another bottle of wine. You need to go home, get some sleep, 
wake up the next morning and take care of your wife and kids. You know, that would be better. So then you decide, no, long-term consequences are, are poor. Raise entropy. You see? So you look at things. It's not just because, well, that would make him happy. And aren't I supposed to make people happy? Well, not really. You're supposed to lower entropy with your choices. You see? So just being happy or sad isn't the end point to it. That should be considered, but you have to go beyond, you have to go beyond that. But if I had my intuition said, oh, it's a bad idea, I would just not do it. Even if my intellect couldn't find a good reason, because my experience is that the intuition is a lot smarter than the intellect. So if there's a, if there's a toss up there between the two of them, I'll always give it to the intuition. The intellect will always lose that argument. Perfect. Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you, Vanatu. I've got a little fill-in question from the last one that corresponds to, um, from this is from John McKay. I'm confused about your definition of ego. Awareness in the service of fear isn't making sense because ego is the result of fears we are unaware of. Issues like not being good enough or avoided, they stay outside of awareness in the subconscious. What do you mean by awareness in this sentence? Could you explain your definition? Okay. Yes, the definition of awareness is you know, something that is aware, something that receives information, something that uh, an awareness. It's aware of situation. It's aware of itself. It's self-awareness. You know, it's aware of what's not itself, aware of its environment. So awareness is something that can gather information. It's, it's aware of what it gathers. Now, ego is that awareness, and that awareness is not necessarily just intellectual awareness. You're thinking that of intellectual awareness. Remember earlier on this today, we talked about awareness, you know, that is beneath your intellect. And that would be, you know, in Freud's terms, that would be your, your uh, subconscious. So a lot of things go on in your subconscious, but it's still, it's part of you. You're aware of it. So my awareness includes the subconscious. My awareness is not just the, uh, what do we call it, the, the, I guess Freud called it the ego, you know, that's <laughs> a little confusing, but uh, it's, it's your total awareness. You get information. That information can be in your subconscious. It could be in your, your conscious. So that's probably the thing that you're tripping over is my, my use of the word awareness. You're thinking awareness is just your intellectual awareness, but it's more than that. It's your intuitive awareness as well as your intellectual awareness. It's what's going on at the being level. And it's not just subconscious. Subconscious is another thing that Freud talks about, which is the stuff that's too ugly to be in your conscious, too ugly to be in your intellect. Your intellect doesn't want to deal with it, so it gets thrown down into the subconscious. My awareness is more general than that. It includes most of the subconscious, and it is uh, all of the... the uh, uh, intuitive side, things that you know, things that you feel, all of your feelings are in there. That's all part of your awareness. So that's the difference. That's what was confusing you is we tend to use awareness as the same as intellect. And I don't use it that way. I, uh, I has awareness is both subject is, is both uh, intuitive and intellectual. So we have awareness in the service of fear. That's ego. And you don't have ego if you don't have fear. <laughs> I guess you don't have ego if you don't have awareness either. So ego, I mean, awareness in the service of love is what Freud roughly, very roughly calls superego. It's about other, not about self. It's not eye-centered. So that would be awareness in the service of love. So in the service of ego, that means you're serving the ego by hiding the fear. That's one of the services that uh, the ego performs. You have fear and you hide 
you hide your intellect from that fear through all kinds of devices. So I hope I've made it clear and and not just muddied the waters, but I think the problem is with the definition of awareness being not the same as just intellect. Awareness is different than intellect. It's a bigger, broader thing than just intellect. There's lots of things we have going on in our minds that never get to our intellect, but they're all part of our awareness. All right, Tom. Well, we had um, Guillaume trying to type the question in. Guillaume's question is about um, a recent really, really painful breakup. I rose into love with this love of my life, with nothing less than paradise on earth, and with that girl as my objective. And then it went to a dark place. It really reflected my insecurities, fears, child trauma, I think. Could you comment on that quote from Bruce Lipton? I learned again and again in my life, until you get your own act together, you're not ready for big love. What you're ready for is one of those codependent relationships where you desperately need a partner. Well, I'm not familiar with that quote, but it was a wise quote. I think that's probably true. Um, But that doesn't mean you avoid relationships. It basically means that you don't push relationships. It doesn't mean that you avoid them. You say, well, okay, I must not be ready yet, so I should avoid a relationship. You let relationships go however they go. You know, if a relationship just starts and it buds and it develops, then you should explore it, see where it goes. Relationships are good things. They're learning things. Sometimes they turn out to be very painful. Sometimes they turn out to be, you know, very beautiful. Sometimes they start out beautiful and then go painful, and sometimes the other way around. But you should always engage and connect in a relationship. If it starts to build and go somewhere positive, then engage it and see, just see where it goes. But don't have an expectation of where it's going. Don't have an expectation, oh, this is going to be the love of my life. All right, I finally found the one. Just let it go wherever it goes. So then it is what it is. And if it turns out to be really beautiful, then it is beautiful and you enjoy it. If it turns out not so much, well, then it doesn't work out so well and that maybe fizzles and goes away. But you just have to be who you are. Don't try to be the perfect person for them. You have to be who you are. If you're acting, if you're in a role, if you're, if you're, if it's about your, uh, your image, you're, you're making an image that somebody likes, that's not going to work. You'll try that and it'll crash and burn, which is part of what makes Bruce's, you know, Bruce's, uh, quote accurate. You know, if it's your image you're working through, If you're acting a role, then it's probably going to crash and burn because that's really not you. So just be you. And if it doesn't work out when you're you, well, that's good because if you tried to push that through and make it work and it's not you, it's just going to get worse and worse. You can't be somebody else. So one, be authentic, be yourself, be who you are. If you're sensitive, if you're frightened, if you're this, if you're that, just be it. Be open. And then when you run into people who can care for somebody who's just like you, and there are people out there like that, then it works really well. And you don't have to worry about them, you know, about finding out later that that was an image. And they need to do the same thing. They need to be, this partner of yours needs to be authentic. So that if you like them, then there's an authentic connection there, authentic likeness. If all you do is like their image, oh, they were so suave and debonair and this and that and sexy and cool and nice and so much fun to be with and so on, but that's all an image, then that turns out not to be the case. It's like it's devastating. So you need not to have, uh, not get wrapped around expectations don't have any expectations. Just pursue, you know, pursue in the right word, but just let a relationship develop as it does. 
without pushing it forward, without holding it back. Just let it naturally go. If it if you want more, then go for more. If you want less, then let it be a while. Just let it go at its own natural pace and see what happens. No sense of what it might be. Let it develop. That's the way you do relationships. And that means that you won't ever be disappointed because you never had any expectations. You uh, will have relationships and you say, well, this looks kind of good, but it didn't work out. And you'll always come to the conclusion, well, it's a good thing it didn't work out because if we pushed that on and we really weren't connected, it would have been worse. Better to find out early on that it doesn't work out than to find that out later after a lot of investment's been put into it. So being authentic. Relationships are wonderful. Follow them, but let them unfold naturally. Don't push at them. Don't make them go. Don't stampede there because you're anxious to have what you have in your mind as the expectation. That then creates a problem. And as Bruce said, you will create these problems for yourself until you get your own head straight. And then you'll stop creating these problems for yourself. And getting your head straight means you let go of the expectations. You stop trying to make it go anywhere in particular. You just let it go wherever it goes. And that you always be authentic and encourage the other person to always be authentic. Because you want really to interact with who they really are, not with some nifty image that they give you for a while, but can't maintain forever because that's not who they are. Some people who are really very cranky can seem very sweet for a while. But if cranky's what they are, cranky's what you're going to eventually end up with. So better to know that in the beginning. If somebody's cranky, well, you may be all right with that. You know, you may say, well, I'm a little cranky too. All right, I can deal with cranky. And that's fine. You see, so relationships need to be natural and they need to be embraced, but not pushed and not made into something that you have the image of is what you want. Don't have any image of what it is you want. Just take what you get and enjoy it, but have lots of relationships with lots of people. Most relationships are just friends, interactions, coworkers and things, but Get to know people. Get to, get to understand people. Listen a lot. Talk little. That's these are the kinds of advices I you know advice I would give about about relationship. And you'll find that each relationship you have will get better than the last one. The next one will be better than the last one if you learn something. From the last one, if you don't learn anything, then you keep repeating the same mistakes and having the same problem. But if you learn from each one, you'll know that, okay, gee, I'm I'm generally kind of self-centered and that tends to get in the way. So I've learned that I need to stop doing that. It has to not just be about me and my wants. And now the next one, it isn't because you've grown up. Or maybe you said, oh, I just made it all about her, her needs and her wants, and it didn't have anything to do with me, in which case I wasn't being honest. I wasn't being sincere because I was hiding my needs and wants and all those things. They were staying hidden. I wasn't just out front with everything. Well, then that was a problem, too. So then you stop. So however it goes, there's lessons in it, whether it goes you know, happy on your end or sad on your end or whatever. There's always lessons to learn about improving how you interact with people, improving who you are. And then the next one will be better. You know, all the relationships that I had before I met uh, Pamela were all just getting me ready to meet Pamela. Uh, And if I hadn't had all those ones before that, I wouldn't have been ready and I probably would have blown it. You know, I wouldn't have done well. So, you know, I look at them all as... I had all the series of relationships, and each one helped me get to the next one to get to the next one. And eventually, I finally got good enough to deal with Pamela in a positive way, not you know stick my foot in it or or uh, you know make it crash and burn. So that's the nature of relationships: is you don't just have one; you have as many as you need, and <laughs> that's okay. Have as many as you need. 
And each time you grow a little and eventually you'll grow up enough that the relationships that you continually have are all really, really good because you're, you're, you're being truthful and honest with yourself and your partner's being truthful and honest with you. And as long as everything is out there, then nothing's going to blow up later on because it's already out there right in the beginning. So that's the thing. Relationships are wonderful. Don't stay away from them because you feel like you're not ready. Go right back into relationships, embrace people, connect with people, but let it take its own course. Don't have any preconceived notions. Don't feel the need to impress or the need to be impressed. Just be. And when you just are and it feels good, now you're onto something real. Thank you, Tom. A very nice way to end our 75th session. Thank you to all of you who came today with such great questions. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.